Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to talk about cursed people. And originally, we were just going to do a big episode on curses. But then we realized that there was a ton of different interesting curses out there. And we want to talk about a bunch of them. So we decided to break it up a bit. Yeah. And I know when I was looking, I kept getting excited about like different types of curses and then was like, oh, we're going to have to rein this in at some point. So I'm glad we decided to kind of lump them into groups. Yeah, so today will be people, but we do have a couple other ones we'll be doing in the future, including objects and even true crime curses. Yeah, and places too. So a lot. But today we're going to start with the Lemp family curse. And just as a note, uh, one of our listeners, Joelle, actually suggested the Lemp Brewery, which I was like looking at our list. And I was like, oh, wait, the Lemp Brewery is part of this. So interesting, kind of backwards way of getting someone's suggestion. Yeah. And thanks for the suggestion, too. If you ever have one that you want us to cover, feel free to send us an email. OK, so Johann Adam Lemp immigrated to St. Louis in 1838. He opened a grocery store and he sold beer. He introduced German-style beer to the U.S., so thank you, Mr. Lemp. (laughs) He found caverns underneath St. Louis were a good place to store his beer because it was naturally cool. He purchased property near the caverns for a brewery. Apparently, many German folks immigrated to St. Louis specifically because of the limestone caves, which I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. In 1840, he opened a Western brewery. In the 1860s, he was the leader in brewing in the area. In 1861, his son William married Julia Fiekerd. In 1862, he died and left the business to his son William. He would eventually end up moving the brewery so it was directly over the caverns and renamed it the Lemp Brewery. In 1868, Julia's father, his name was Jacob, built Lemp's mansion with William's help. William then bought the mansion. In 1878, William was the first St. Louis brewer to have installed a refrigerated portion in his brewing facility. It's weird to think about it that long ago. Yeah. The idea of the 1800s and refrigeration seems wild. Yeah. (laughs) The caves were then closed up and converted to a theater, a bowling alley, and a swimming pool. Could you imagine having all of those things underneath your house and in caves? So it's a little spooky. Sounds kind of cool. I like it. Yeah, no, I like it. It's spooky. Okay. So by 1892, Julia and William had had a total of nine kids, one of which had died as a baby. They had, in order of age, Anna, William Jr., who they called Billy, Louis, Charles, Frederick, Gilda, Edwin, and Elsa. Love this combination of names. Yeah. So in 1901, William's son, Frederick, dies unexpectedly at 28. And so while all of the sons were really working in the brewery, Frederick was his favorite and was likely going to inherit the business. And so when he started to feel sick, he took some time off from working and he went to California and he thought like, oh, the warm weather will like help me feel better, which I just generally think that's like an interesting notion when people are like, 
Perhaps I just need to get the cold out of my bones. I live in hell, literally. It doesn't help anything. Which also, <laughs> we'll mention now. Do you have your fan on? I do. Yeah. So it's 100 and I think 12 outside right now. Yeah. So I had to break down and put on a fan. So if you hear any background noise, I apologize now. We don't want Amanda to just keel over in the middle of this because we like her. So the fan is is a vital part of the podcast now. So if you hear a third voice, just imagine it's a ghost. It's not a fan. It's a ghost. A ghost host fan. Da-da. Yep. So, so he moves to California for a little while to see if it'll make him feel better. While he's there, he gets sick and he dies. Now, some sources listed as heart failure. Other sources say it was mysterious circumstances. I vote for mysterious. I mean, I vote for mysterious as well, especially because he's 28 years old. So heart failure at 28, if you hadn't had a history of that, feels strange, especially from everything I read. It was like he just generally wasn't feeling good. It wasn't like he was having heart problems. Mm -hmm. So not surprisingly, William takes the death of Frederick really, really hard and He loses like motivation and passion and joy for like everything, especially the business. So then to make things worse, three years later in 1904, early 1904, William's best friend, Frederick Pabst of Pabst Blue Ribbon, dies. And he gets even more sad because that's now his best he died too, right? So people say he would just go into work and he would just stare off and he would just kind of be strange. He would just be not himself. So in February of 1904, William, while laying in bed, shot himself in the head and he died later the same day. He left the brewery to his son, Billy. And then before William's death, Billy had married Lillian Hanlon and she was a socialite who was called the Lavender Lady because she was obsessed with the color lavender. She had a carriage. Her horse's harnesses were lavender. She wore lavender. She had like lavender purses. She was all lavender all the time. I feel like we would get along. Yeah. Yeah. The purple, the purple side of the podcast (laughs) is 10 to 10 for this. I also love a commitment to color as an offhand note. Do you find yourself gravitating to purple things? Because I find myself gravitating to green. Like I have a lot of green clothing in my life. Yes, outside of clothing, because I feel like if I wear just purple clothes with the purple hair, I just look like Grimace. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't expecting you to say that. Um, Well, you wouldn't. So let's start there. But... I can understand you're like, it's too much with the whole thing. Meanwhile, I'm like, yeah, literally just dip me in green and here we go. I was organizing my closet earlier and I've watched the home edit. So I'm like, oh, I could do it in rainbow. And this way, like all my light colors are together as opposed to sorting it by like skirts or dresses, which I kind of like a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so my green section has gotten bigger and bigger. And it's also like the same shade of my hair, which is like somewhere between a Kelly green and an emerald green at any given point. So I don't know. Is there an equivalent? Is there a green grimace? Well, you know what we're going to do. I have to look. Green grimace. (laughs) Okay, well, first, I... (laughs) She looked it up. But I need you to know that there is a green grimace. We're going to put... There's a picture of the green one and the purple one. Do you see it? They have like a little... 
they're eating together. Oh, yeah. I was trying to send it to you. <laughs> okay. That's us. Well, the green grimace is Uncle O'Grimacy. And he's like a lime green. And he has a little uh, a vest. And he wears a green corncob hat. And he carries a shillelagh because he's a St. Patrick's Day. He's a shamrock shake. Yeah, he delivers the shamrock shake in McDonald land. I'm so glad we opened this up. We're very off topic, but it was worth it. We're very off topic, and it is worth it. As, again, if you're new to listening to us, sometimes we'll insert some humor when it's really, really heavy topics. And this is a heavy topic. Well, and we started the day today celebrating our 10,000 downloads. Yes, that is true. That is a very, very exciting milestone for us. Okay, so continuing on, we were talking about the Lavender Lady, which is how we got to the grimaces. So going back to our Lavender Lady. And it's not me. Which is not Amanda. So in 1905, William's wife, Julia, was diagnosed with cancer. A year later, she dies in the same room that William did from cancer. In 1908, Lillian, our lavender gal, files for divorce from Billy for grounds of mistreatment and desertion because he didn't spend time with her or their son, William III. And so it's interesting because up until this point, we have a family full of people who are really, really hard workers. Right. So Johann came from Germany and worked really, really hard to make the brewery and make a business that his family could survive on. Right. And then William saw his father do that and wanted to continue his legacy. And so by the time you get to Billy, Billy's likely never known any financial insecurity. Right. So he was relatively well known for socializing and partying. He had extravagant parties in the caves with booze and women. And Lillian said that he even brought women back to the house. Yeah, gross. And so he retorted in a very Victorian era kind of defense that she was foul mouthed. Okay. And that she wore all lavender to get attention, which if those are the only character falls you can find in a person then Lillian must be like smelling like a daisy. But so he was like, you're wearing too much purple. You just want attention. And she's like, why would I be wearing lavender at home then? She didn't say that, but I would imagine that'd be what she would say. Because it's a ridiculous (laughs) response to, hey, you're partying and cheating on me. You cuss and wear the same color. Not the same. But so they were like high society. So people were really fascinated with their divorce case. So think like how we are now with people. Celebrities. Like celebrities, right? And so people would wait in line to try to get seats in the courtroom so that they could watch the divorce proceedings, which seems wild to me. And both of them at different points, at at least once, cried on the stand when they were cross-examined. And so by 1913, their divorce has gone through and Lillian was granted the largest divorce settlement amount in history at that time, which is interesting because she was already rich. So she was like, bring it on. But it sounds like she deserved it. Yeah. So then we're going to fast forward a little bit to January of 1920. That's when prohibition starts. Other breweries sold non-alcoholic stuff and were okay, but Lemp Brewery was not. Oh, and for anyone that doesn't know, Prohibition is when alcohol was outlawed. So it was a very dark time. Yeah. And also, we say outlawed because it wasn't stopped. People still drank. It was just a sneaky, sneaky, speakeasy situation. Yeah. Lemp put very little effort, though, to try. So he wasn't doing well. His brewery wasn't doing well, while others found a way to manage. 
Some think they were so rich that he didn't really need the business, so he just resigned. In March of 1920, Elsa kills herself by shooting herself in the heart. Just a dark turn. That's so incredibly sad, right? That and over and over again, you're seeing this pattern. She was William's youngest child. As an adult, she was St. Louis's most wealthy woman. Her and her husband's only daughter died during childbirth as well. She divorced her husband, Thomas, and cut him out of her will. They remarried, but she shot herself in the heart 12 days after marrying again. She was at her home, not the mansion. So people don't think that her ghost is there. Billy's response was, that's the Lemp family for you. I can't imagine how terrible it would feel. Well, one, divorce during this time was already like really, really awful. But the fact that her and Thomas reconciled and they got back together and then she killed herself, that blows my mind. I was like, that hurts my heart for him because like, oh, yeah. So June of 1922, Billy sells the Lent Brewery for a fraction of what it was worth. In December of 1922, Billy goes into his office in the Lemp Mansion and also shoots himself in the heart. That feels like a hard place to shoot yourself. It does, doesn't it? Just like getting it right. But I guess that's the only place to be sure. Yeah. So Billy's son, William, a lot of Williams in the story. He said, you knew I knew it. I was afraid this was coming. Dark. Yeah. And then William, the son, tried to bring the business back after Prohibition, but it didn't last long. So he lived at his father's country estate, but it eventually foreclosed on the same year that he and his wife divorced. He ended up dying of a heart attack at 42 years old. I wonder how common divorce was among the upper class in that time period, because it seems like they're getting divorced an awful lot, Mm -hmm. which is just strange. But also a heart attack at 42 is also super young, it feels like. It does. Yeah. In 1929, Charles, who's Billy's brother, he moved back to Lemp Mansion with his dog. He was a recluse. He was a grump and never had people over and didn't go out. Sounds like us last year. I mean, or me now. (laughs) (laughs) So in 1941, Charles sent a letter to a local funeral home, giving them the following directions upon his death. Do not bathe or change my clothes. Cremate me. No funeral service and no obituary. Interesting. Strange. I mean, especially because from everything that we read, we didn't see any history of illness or any reason for him to be thinking that his death was imminent other than being a limp. Right. But it seemed like everyone around him was dying. So maybe it was just in his head. So in 1949, Charles shot his dog and then himself, which don't really care for Charles. No. His note said, in case I am found dead, blame it on no one but me. Very strange note. So now we're up to what? Three suicides? Mm-hmm. We had Elsa, William, and now Charles. Yeah. He was the last limp to live in that house because it was sold after his death. So this is the time that the rumors of the curse started. Which, interesting, right? Now they think there's a curse. After all of this death and all of this misfortune, they're just now like, perhaps there's a curse. Yeah, yeah. So Edwin, the last of William's children, died at 90 years old at his country retreat. He collected art and artifacts from his travels all over the world. We know that's a big no-no. Now looking into curses, by the way. Yes, Yes. He also inherited the wealth from his family members and their items. 
He wanted everything destroyed upon his death, but didn't say why. Again, another odd curse thing you'll see. Some think it was because he didn't want to pass down cursed heirlooms. In 1975, Richard Pointer purchased the mansion and turned it into a restaurant. Yeah, and it still is a restaurant, just as a note. We messaged the restaurant on Instagram to see if they had any fun stories. They did not respond, but their food does look delicious. My (laughs) brother lives in St. Louis, and when he was here last, he was like, you have to try fried raviolis. They're like such a thing there. I was like, I mean, fried raviolis are a thing everywhere. I've had them here, like, whatever. But then I saw the ones on this menu. Yeah. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever beheld in my life. It was stunning. (laughs) And it also seems like the restaurant still leans into some of what we're going to get into. So there are stories about haunted activity in every room of the house. So in Billy Lemp's room, there's a bathroom and Richard Pointer was in there and he was painting and he was by himself and he could feel someone watching him. And we've talked about how like sometimes in in previous episodes, like what that feeling actually is and how you can have like psychosomatic sensations in your body. But he was like, it was a burning sensation. That's how intensely he felt it. And it came on all of a sudden. So it wasn't like he walked in and had like the heebie-jeebies and was like, oh, someone's watching me. He was doing his thing and then all of a sudden he felt it. So it scared him so bad that he ended up leaving. So in Charles's bedroom, small things would move around and there's also a blood stain on the floor. You would think they'd get that taken care of. One bedroom perpetually smells like sewage, but there's no issues with plumbing or anything in the room. And some people say like, that means that ghosts don't favor you or that there's demons. And I was like, well, one, I've watched Supernatural. So that would be sulfur, not sewage. But it's just like an interesting wrinkle. There's a small child that walks down one of the hallways. In the basement, people have seen a shadow man. So Richard Pointer, he hired an artist to restore the mansion ceilings in the dining room because they were hand painted. And if you ever want to look at just like a stunning house, take a peek at Lemp Mansion because they really leaned into we're rich as hell and they painted like everything. It's gorgeous. But so he hired someone to restore it to hand paint it. And the person was laying on scaffolding on their back painting, right? And all of a sudden, it feels like someone is watching him from the hallway specifically. And it goes away, that feeling, and then it comes back. And he like turns to kind of look at it to see, is there someone there or something like that? But there's like a frost, there's frosted glass on the door. That's just like the way it looked. And he couldn't see through it. He literally just got the fuck out. He didn't get his materials. He didn't wash his paintbrushes. He didn't even lock the doors. He just left. I wonder what he saw then. Actually, so from what I saw, he didn't see anything specifically. He was just that scared and that unnerved. No, he just doesn't want to talk about it. He saw something. Maybe he did. Maybe it's one of these kids. <laughs> and it's interesting, too. So for Elsa's room. Now, remember, Elsa didn't die on the property. And so I saw in one source, so I don't know if this is true or not, that in the 20th century, the mansion was used as a makeshift hospital for overflow from a pediatric hospital and that there were terminally ill children who were staying in Elsa's room. And the ghosts from some of those children will play pranks like pulling the sheets out from sleeping guests. Interesting. Yeah. And sad. Very sad. Very sad. This is all sad. So Pointer's son, his name was Dick. He 
was sleeping there with his dog, Shadow. They were asleep when they heard a loud bang, which could have been a kick, maybe outside the bedroom door. They searched the mansion, but they didn't find anyone. Another time, he was closing the restaurant with one of their employees, and they heard two keys being played on the piano. Again, they went, they looked around, they saw no one. There was a candle that no one lit, and it was lit on the mantle. So fire ghost. Fire yeti, fire ghost. Yep. The drawer of a piece of furniture was opening and closing by itself. It had also been owned by the Lemps. They saw glasses move. They heard disembodied voices. They heard horses on the road leading to the carriage house, but no horses. And here's what I find interesting. So when we talk about people haunting, you generally think of like a a traumatic event or something like that as why the person is haunting the house. Whenever I see that animals are involved, that makes me think that there's something about the place that makes it more or less haunted. Yeah. Or that like perhaps the person who heard that was a bit more ghosty sensitive. Maybe. So there's a waitress. Her name was Bonnie Strayhorn. And she checked to make sure everything was ready to open. There was a man with dark hair sitting in the dining room. She asked if he wanted a cup of coffee. She turned to flip the switch to turn the light on. And then he was gone. So Bonnie quit that same day. (laughs) No worries, Bonnie. So like Lindsay said, the mansion is still a restaurant today, and it also has an event space and a bed and breakfast. I absolutely want to go there. We go to there. Yep. Ghost Adventures did do an episode on it. And per Lemp Mansion's Twitter, they have a seance and a mentalism show. And it's scheduled for the last Saturday of every month at 7 p.m. I love that they're leaning into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if all these stories are circulating, why not make money off of it? You know, people like us wanting to go and see. Yeah. Look, people who like ghosties, our money is still green. (laughs) Yeah. People thought that it was cursed because one, people died, but how they died, they died early, they died of mysterious illnesses, or they were completing suicide at a rate that's pretty unusual in a single family. And also because of things like Julia's cancer, they chalk the divorce up to that, even though the divorce wasn't that. So what do you think? Why did the curse happen? Oof. I honestly do not know. I'm thinking maybe the artifacts, because later when we get to our cursed object episode, we're going to see that sometimes everyday objects can have something a little bit more to them and possibly when he was traveling. That's true. But Edwin was one of the youngest of the children. So even if he had been collecting artifacts, their bad luck started well before that would have happened, I would think, because there was Julius Cancer, which was in 1905. There was the death of Frederick, which was in 1901. Well, then maybe they just pissed off the wrong brewery. Maybe they did. I feel like whenever I see any type of like curse place, the first play thing you see is like, there was a Native American curse. And I was glad to not see that here. Perhaps there's sources out there that we didn't see that said that, but I was just really glad that we didn't take that route because it feels a little annoying and frankly rude. But like, I I don't know. Perhaps there was an illness that ran in their family, right? Like maybe there was some type of like heart defect that ran in their family, which is why some of them died so young. And maybe others, they felt like they were getting sick. And mean they wanted to die on their own terms. A lot of different things that could have happened to them. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's terrible shit that happens in every family, right? Like we are all going to die at some point. But it feels like the way that people died in this family was worse than the average family. Mm -hmm. So we're going to move on to the 27 Club, which I hadn't heard of this 
before I started looking into curses. Had you heard of this before? I had heard of it, but not necessarily as a curse, just as a, this is a scary year. Yeah. So the 27 Club, it's basically a large group of celebrities, primarily musicians, that die at 27. And we don't know why. Now, we're going to talk about strictly musicians. We wanted to narrow it in some way because there are so, so many. So we're going to talk about musicians. Also because the first person in the club is a musician. So it's interesting. I think that that's kind of like the biggest common thread throughout this that I've seen was music. So we're going to talk about the musicians, the year, as well as how they died. A little bit into perhaps how common it may have been some of these deaths. So the first is Robert Johnson in 1938, and he died of strychnine poisoning and pneumonia. And we're going to circle back to him at the end. Then in 1969, Brian Jones made some bad choices here. He was drinking, doing drugs, and then went swimming. Per Keith Richard, I don't know what happened, but there was some nasty business going on. In 1970, Alan Wilson, a blind owl, he died and he was found outside. Now, he routinely slept outside and he was found outside by one of his bandmates and his hands were crossed over his chest, which seems like a peculiar way to sleep. Yeah. And he was found with a bottle of barbiturates next to him. Interesting. It's probably one of the bigger ones on here. So 1970, Jimi Hendrix, he mixed alcohol and a high dose of a sleeping pill which was also a barbiturate. In 1970, also, Janis Joplin died. She'd injected heroin. And then soon after, she was leaning over to get something on her table and she fell forward and she hit her head and her body was found the next day. 1971, Jim Morrison of The Doors. He was feeling sick, so he drew a bath. Authorities who came to the scene said he died of heart failure. However, there was no autopsy performed. Several people say that he died of a heroin overdose in a nightclub bathroom stall and that his body was moved, which it's unclear whether those moving him just thought he might have been unconscious. Maybe he passed out. Some think he faked his death because he was facing charges for exposing himself and that the body double was buried in the grave. Yeah. A lot of weird things with that. A lot of weird, weird things. So in 1973, Ron Pigpen McKernan from The Grateful Dead he had been a heavy drinker for most of his life, and he had cirrhosis of the liver, and he had also had ulcers, plus a host of other issues. His landlady found him two days after he had died in his house. In 1975, Dave Zander Alexander, founding basis of the Stooges, he died of a pulmonary edema. In 1975, Gary Thane of Uriah Heep died of a heroin overdose. In 1975, Peter Ham of Badfinger died by suicide. In 1978, Chris Bell of Big Star crashed his car into a pole. A lot of these. Oh, my goodness. All at 27. Okay. So 1985, D. Boone of Minutemen. He was on his way to visit his girlfriend's family in Arizona for the holidays. He had been sleeping in the back of the van when she fell asleep at the wheel. The back door flew open and the van flipped and he died because of his neck being broken. Yeah. In 1988, Jean-Michel Basquiat died when he mixed drugs and alcohol. The drugs were specifically opioids and cocaine. In 1993, Mia Zapata of the Gits, she was beaten, raped, and strangled to death. Other bands raised money to hire a PI to find her murderer, and they were eventually convicted in 2003. Home Alive, a defense organization, was formed by her friends. So in 1994, 
I actually think this is probably people our age might know this one the most. But so in 1994, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana died by suicide. Just a lot about that one, too. Yeah. In 1994, Kristen Pfaff of Hole died by heroin overdose. Yeah. And interesting note, Kurt Cobain, Courtney Love. Courtney Love was in Hole. So two people in one year. That's really hard. Mm -hmm. So in 1995, Randy Stretch Walker died of a gunshot. In 2003, Jeremy Michael Ward of the Mars Volta died of a heroin overdose. I remember that one. That was sad. Yeah. And in 2011, Amy Winehouse died of alcohol poisoning. So a lot. And what holds all of these together is that 27. Hold on to that. So something that we were curious about is, you know, a lot of these were heroin overdoses, right? Or drug overdoses. So we thought it would be interesting just to see how common was a heroin overdose. And drug overdoses weren't specifically tracked until 1979. Isn't that wild? That's crazy. You would think at least a little bit before that. My goodness. Yeah. And when I was looking into what they were called before then, I actually couldn't find anything conclusively saying it was this. I think it was accidental poisoning before them, but they could have listed them under unintentional suicide or suicide. It could have been unexplained. Yeah, interesting. In 1999, what type of drug overdose started to be tracked as well? So it wasn't just drug overdose. It was, okay, which drug actually caused it? In 2019, 14,000 people died of heroin overdose. More than four deaths of every 100,000 Americans. That's seven times higher than it was in 1999. That's too many. Yes. In the 1970s, there was an average of 6,100 deaths for heroin overdoses. Crazy. And when we were looking at this, it was like heroin overdose, heroin overdose, heroin overdose over and over, which was just like... It's a lot of people. And I guess there's that kind of idea that like rock stars do drugs, right? But I I guess with our generations of music, were they doing drugs? Possibly. But I didn't really know about it, I feel like, for the most part. You know, like when you're thinking of like pop punk bands or just like general rock bands from like the late 1990s to the early 2000s. I feel like you weren't like, oh, wow, they're high on purpose for fun. I don't know. I mean, some of them, but yeah, yeah, I I get what you mean. Some of them, but it was just like, it wasn't a part of like what you looked at a rock star to be, I think, maybe. So I think that one of the reasons that people so thoroughly believe that there's some mystical, problematic concern with the number 27 is because the founding member of the 27 Club, and that is Robert Johnson. And before we get into that, just Amanda, at 27, that's kind of like, it's an interesting age, right? It's an age where you feel like your life should like start to be on track. I feel like my late 20s was a really big part of my life where I felt a lot of societal pressure to be whatever thing I was going to be. Yeah. And so I don't think that's unique to our generation. I think that's probably something that a lot of generations of 27-year-olds have felt, but I can't help but wonder if that's part of it. You you should figure out who you are and what you're doing by that time normally. Yeah, you're like, I know I need to like figure my shit out by this age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But let's talk about the founding member who is Robert Johnson. Most people have heard the legend about him that he was a wholly mediocre guitar player. Nothing great, nothing special. And then one day he went to a crossroads where he sold his soul to the devil for the ability to play the guitar and to be a fantastic musician. And when I first read his name, that is what came to my mind. I was like, oh, it's the one where people say he sold his soul to play music. 
Yeah. And just generally, when you say like, oh, there's the only way that you could become phenomenal is through the occult as an adult. I feel like I'm like, hmm. I, uh, getting good at things that you want to be good at is unfortunately not that easy. Because like, look, I'll tell you, True Creeps is it's my, my soul right now a little bit. And if I could sell a sliver of my soul to be able to edit faster, I might do that. <laughs> so I don't, you know, there's no easy way. You know what I mean? So... Yeah. But okay, so let's let's just talk a little bit about his past. So he was born in 1911, and he was born in May, but the exact date is unknown because folks can't find his birth certificate. And that's part of the mystery of him. Yeah. Yes, yes. Like, right, like those those details are missing. He was educated in Memphis. When he was 18, he married Virginia Travis. And her family was already a little bit skeptical of him because he was a blues musician. And that was the devil's music as far as they were concerned. His plan was to give that all up and to be a husband and go get a job and support his wife and baby. And so when she was about two weeks away from her due date, they went to her grandmother's house where she would be giving birth. And he was like, okay, I have two weeks. I'm going to go play music and I'm going to busk until the baby's here. And I'm going to get money and I'll do it. But after, like, he was kind of, it was like a last hurrah for music for him. He's like, I'm going to, like, kiss music goodbye and then do this next chapter of my life. So he gets back to the grandmother's house. And that's when he finds out that both Virginia and the baby had died. It's horrible. Yes. To make matters worse, Virginia's relatives told him it was his fault for playing the devil's music. Making us. Right. Which, I mean, 18, you're just a kid and you're like, "Mm, no, my heart hurts for him. So he had been busking to make money for to live. So with the Great Depression, obviously people weren't giving money to people playing music on the street corners. Right. So he had more financial issues. And, you know, in the music scene where he was, he was known as a mediocre musician and folks wouldn't even want to touch their instruments because they were afraid he would break them. And he was in Robinsonville. And so he left for a year. And it's during this year that people say that that's when he made his pact with the devil. Of course. Yeah. But what he actually did was he trained under a guitarist named Ike Zimmerman. And so an interesting note is that he trained him to play in the graveyard because nobody would complain. So they would go to the graveyard in the middle of the night and play. And that's when he would play. So he did this like nightly. And so when he returned back to the Sun House Bar, which is where he used to play, he went in and he had a seventh string on his guitar. And when he came back, folks were like, oh, gosh, he's going to play again. Like, we don't want this. And then he gets up on stage and everyone's kind of like dumbfounded, like, who are you? You are Robert who left. You are Robert who was like a wholly unremarkable person. And here you are, seventh string and new talent and a whole style of your own. And so he ends up having another son, but he's not allowed to see him because of the music he played. His son, Claude Johnson, said he had only saw his father twice. And that was when he was giving his mother money and that he saw his father ask to see him and that his mother said no. Why is he getting with these people that hate music? I don't know. I don't know. So another blues player, Honey Boy, said that Robert's favorite was whiskey and women. And that's what would be eventually his downfall. So he was at a bar and he was handed a bottle of whiskey from the husband of a woman he had been flirting with. He didn't know that the seal on the whiskey had been broken. The husband had put strychnine in the bottle. So he ingested it and he crawled outside along the road and he died outside. There was an anecdotal autopsy. Basically, they were like, they found that there was strychnine in the bottle and they were like, this is why he died. 
but nobody was ever charged with his murder. So an earlier guitar player, Tommy Johnson, and you may have heard his story too, said that the devil tuned his guitar. And Tommy's brother actually said, you know, Tommy personally told me the story like as proof that it happened. So this was before Robert. So when Robert came back, people began to speculate that maybe he had saw the devil. And it's interesting because I see two different kind of paths on this where it's when he came back that people are talking about references to the devil. And then I also see that it's years later that people are like inputting this myth into his work. And so he had songs like Crossroad Blues, Hellhound on My Trail, Me and the Devil Blues, Up Jump the Devil. So interesting. So if you are looking at the first introduction of the devil and his music, and if you're looking at like the, fir- the introduction of the devil and his music as when he came back, I saw that he didn't really deny the rumors. But so alternatively, some say that the rumors didn't begin until the 1960s when folks interpreted the song Crossroad Blues to be more devil related rather than Christian centric. But that could be said with anything, literally anything. I'm seeing right now, people are circulating that the movie Cruella is like an ode to the devil. So yeah, well, and also, so the lyric, here are the lyrics. You ready? I went to the crossroad, fell down on my knees. I went to the crossroad, fell down on my knees. Ask the Lord above, have mercy, save poor Bob, if you please. I can't find any devil in there. I find none. And like many artists, he used veiled language to convey, you know, what he thought. So, for example, in Hellhound on My Trail, that was meant to talk about bloodhounds, like what police at the time used, but he wasn't going to come out and say police dogs. Yeah. So Stephen Johnson, Robert's grandson, he is a singer, a preacher, and he's the vice president of the Robert Johnson Blues Foundation. He thinks that rather than disappearing for a year, it was actually closer to three years. So he comes back years later and people aren't really aware of the time difference. The reason why he had left Robinsonville was to go back to his hometown, Hazelhurst, to find his father. And when he couldn't, that's when he met Ike Zimmerman. And so we talk about Robert Johnson in relation to this curse because this like, quote unquote, curse Because people tie that kind of like myth, right, that devil myth to Robert Johnson and then act as though that's kind of like the link between all of these people is that they all died at 27. And I've even seen, you know, some people speculate that maybe other musicians have made packs with a devil. And I'm like, hmm, interesting lore, if you will. Yeah, interesting. I don't know if you've seen it, but I've seen like the articles of, oh, no, this artist is 27. I have. Yeah. And it's like, be careful for this year. I feel like if I was a musician, I might tread a little more lightly that year. Yeah, for sure. So let's get away from celebrities for a moment. Just a moment. Just a moment, because we're going to we're going to circle back. But there is a supposed cursed family in India, and it's an Indian blacksmith family, and they have 140 members with webbed fingers, and they believe it's the result of God's curse on them. So they live in a small village in southern India, and some of the people have three fingers fused together, while others have two. Condition is known as syndactyly, meaning fingers or toes are joined together. However, it can be treated surgically. The family, though, doesn't want the surgery. They believe that if they did it, something bad would happen to them. So it started about 90 years ago, and it's been passed down generation to generation. One of the members who is 70 years old, and she's the oldest woman in the family, believes it will continue to happen. She said our grandfather used to tell tell it started after a neighbor cut off a tree at the sacred grove. Ever since, the children of our family have been born with webbed hands. So one relative lost his hearing sense after he had surgery to correct his fingers. So that's why they think, oh, if we 
have surgery, then something bad is going to happen. They did say that they did not want to meet the same fate by hurting or angering the gods. Some people say that the fingers look like snakes or like snake-like. So to appease the snake god, family organizes a big prayer ceremony every year at their ancestral home that has the sacred grove. They believe that the gods reside there. So Amanda and I, our first response when looking at this, well, one of the first responses was, is this a really common thing? Because I haven't seen this before. Had you heard of this before? At least on this scale, not just like a one-off. Like mutated fingers and like different things that can be passed down, but not necessarily this exact form. So... This particular birth defect is found in one in every 2,000 live births. So it's incredibly common. Pretty common, yeah. And how it happens is so, news for me again, when babies are growing, when their hand is growing, it starts off as a paddle. And then the paddle splits into fingers, which what a marvel. In terms of whether syndactyly is genetic, there are over 300 genetic syndromes that involve this as a possible symptom. And in 10 to 40% of folks who have it, there's a family history. So, I mean, for sure it could be genetic. I mean, especially 300 syndromes. Like, it could be so many things. Right, right. It's just strange that 140 members of this family have had it. You would think that like over time after like having children with different families over and over and over again, that it might eventually stop. I wonder if there's something about where they live, like if there's like a mineral in the water or something like that, that does something to the babies or I mean, that does something to pregnant women, really, because it's not going to be babies. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So now let's switch to a fully different curse where we said we were going to loop back to celebrities and we are. Our outline calls this next part the house of two Britneys. I was thinking Brit squared. Oh, Brit squared. You know, I love to square and cube everything. So Brit squared would also work. Okay. So when we say Britney squared, we mean Britney Spears and Britney Murphy. I love them both. Yeah. And you know, both of them have had a lot of tragedy and death in their life, right? Free Britney. So some people suspect that either the home was cursed or that both Britneys were cursed at some time. So we thought we'd include them. Now, Julianne Kay interviewed with a podcast called We Need to Talk About Britney. And she had worked for Britney Spears for four years. And she started with her, I guess, during, I believe it was the Oops, I Did It Again tour and was with her for a while. So, you know, when she was a big name. You're looking in time, we're talking Britney and Justin era. Yes, correct. And to go along with that, she's the one that did the makeup for the famous denim outfit. Just so you know what era of Britney she worked with. Denim on denim. So... Britney had this mansion, right, in like the Hollywood Hills. And so she went on this podcast and talked about a certain odd happening that happened in this house. Julianne on the podcast talks about how Britney had someone come over and do Reiki healing on her. And she had a crazy weekend, needed to relax, had Reiki done. When the guy left, she believes that he had somehow opened something like a spirit portal or something along those lines and that something bad was in the house, like bad spirits had come in. And she believes it was a male and a female spirit and that they were trying to do things to her, like push her down the stairs. And it got so bad that Britney Spears left her mansion. She went to a hotel to stay there and she never returned to that home again. Have you ever had Reiki done? 
interestingly, I worked at a place that provided Reiki. And so, yes, but when I think of Reiki, I don't think of it how Britney Spears might have thought that it could have opened a spirit portal. What about you? I've had two different like Reiki experiences back in my like early to mid 20s. I managed a coffee shop and one of our customers who came in was a woman named Brianna, who she was a Reiki practitioner. And I was like limping one day because I had broken my toe. And let me just ever so briefly. My second toe is longer than my first toe. Significantly. About a half inch. I was going to like walk into my bathroom. And the apartment I was in at the time had one of those little metal step guards. And it was like, there's weird steps in weird places. But you would step down from the hallway and then you would step up into the bathroom. I didn't lift my foot high enough for my second toe to clear. And so with the full force of a step... I hit the front of my second toe. And then I went to patient first and they were like, yes, you've chipped your bone. Stay off of it. And I worked in food service and I did not get paid time off. So I did not stay off of it. So I was like, I just wore better shoes. And so I'm like limping around. And she's like, what happened? And I told her and she was like, let me give you a Reiki session. And she does. Now, the doctor had said five weeks, five weeks with me resting. It would heal. Yeah. And it would stop hurting. Because, I mean, like, it also felt like somebody had, like, taken a hammer to my toe at all times. Like, it was a lot of pain. Because toe injuries are stupid. She did a Reiki session. She also did this, like, little energy signature thing. And she was like, you might feel me doing it when you're not around me. And I was like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I did not think it was going to work at all. Yeah. Like, no part of me thought it would work. And I was like, uh-huh, sure. Like, like what, what's, what's the worst that could happen, right? Like, some magic on my toe. Nothing. Whatever. So I, like, continued my life, continued on. And um, next morning, I woke up and felt a little better. I was like, mm, could be a placebo. Within three days, there was no pain. Interesting. At all. The swelling was gone. It was gone in three days. I also have a very strange habit of scratching my corneas. And she did the same thing with my eyes. And every corneal operation I had after healed really quickly when she was involved. That is interesting. Yes. So the idea that it's going to open some some portal that has no vortex bouncer, it doesn't make sense to me. No. And for those that don't know what Reiki is, it's basically when someone channels like healing energy into someone. And I've read that some people do it through touch, but in my experience, the person just more like hovered their hands over the person getting the Reiki done. Yeah, that's what Brianna did to me. Yeah. And the individual thinks about like healing and a white light and energy being transferred. So when Brittany tells her makeup artist, I think a portal opened because of Reiki, I was like, what else were you doing, Brittany? That also makes me wonder, like, perhaps this is a person who is, like, ghosty sensitive, as I was saying before, and maybe they did more than that, you know? Possibly, yeah. Like, maybe they did something else, and she just thought that, oh, yeah, this is, they said they were coming to do Reiki. This is what Reiki is. I'm not sure. But to Julianne, Brittany said, I'm not crazy. I know what I saw. I know what I felt. And immediately, remember, she didn't go back to the house. She put her house up on the market. Guess who buys that home? Well, we've already given a spoiler alert. It's Brittany Murphy. Brittany Murphy. (laughs) Yeah. And we all know what happened to Brittany Murphy. And we'll talk a little bit about it. I think there's a lot to it. But she did pass away in the home. So a lot of people believe, well, maybe the house was cursed. Maybe Britney Spears was cursed because remember, she went through a really bad part of her life a little bit after that, too. I mean, I think she still is. She still is, unfortunately. But I mean, when you think of the worst time, you think of it shortly after that. Yeah. I mean, 
I think that is this the point of our podcast? No, but am I going to tell you my opinion anyway? Absolutely. I think that Britney is one of the first child celebrities who grew up in the spotlight in that way. People now you go like, oh, you you knew you were going to be famous. Like you knew that she could not have contemplated this world. No. And how do you prepare, cope in a healthy way, especially when perhaps some parts of your family or people who you're close to are using you for money? Yeah, there's a lot to it. Yeah, it's a lot. The makeup artist talked about a couple instances where like Britney just wanted to go shopping, you know, like a normal teenage thing. I want to go shopping with my friends. And like she couldn't even do little things like that because paparazzi would find her. She'd have to be like captive almost. Yeah. One. Okay. so anyway, so let's move on to 2003 when Britney Murphy bought the house. According to her husband, Simon Monjack, pretty soon after buying the house, Brittany started to hate the house. She didn't want it. She wanted to sell it and move. And when she was in the house, the only place where she really wanted to be was in the bathroom. Interesting. Strange, right? Especially because of where she was found. Yes. And so in 2009, and then five months later in 2010, Brittany Murphy, then her husband Simon Monjack, died in the home. Now, we watched a documentary on ID where we got some of this information. We also have a host of other sources. If you want to take a look at them, go to our website. But I just wanted to mention it because a lot of this is I've only seen it in that documentary. So Brittany Murphy died on December 20th of 2009. And before then, her career had started to decline. And I think that her career path is just a little bit interesting because she went from clueless. She was like this curly haired, kind of curvy, but like by no means curvy, right? Like they were calling her fat, but she was not fat. She was like, not at all. Still tiny, which that's just like a whole different can of worms of like, how did I develop my sense of self in a time when like a size eight was considered huge? Like strange. As her stardom rose, she got thinner and blonder. Yeah. And so that's noted in the documentary, which I thought was like, I was like, oh, yeah, that did kind of happen. I just assumed style, right? Like they just changed how they styled her, but it is true. But so her career starts to decline. And some people think that that is in part due to her husband. And because it was said that he was isolating her and that he would tell her who she could and couldn't talk to and or work with. Also, that as her stardom declined, she was still making like... Hollywood starlet demands in like C-list movies. And they were like, no, no. So interesting, right? So we're going to talk about her death and then just some of the interesting things about it. So the fire department responded after she had collapsed in the bathroom and her mother had called 911. She was taken to the hospital and she died two hours later. Her autopsy said that she died of pneumonia and severe anemia. They also said that she had an overdose on over-the-counter medications I saw so many articles that the anemia was due to heavy periods, which I don't know where they got that from. I think they saw anemia and were like, heavy periods, which ugh, gross, right? Not periods, just the assumption. So at the scene, they found a plethora of prescription pills. I want to think it was around 90 under Simon's name. There's a ton. Yeah. And they ranged from painkillers to different like anti-anxiety medications. So they were a little surprised when none of that was found to be a significant issue in terms of like what had caused her demise. So because of the rumors about Simon controlling Britney, a lot of people started to suspect him. So Simon and Britney's mother, Sharon, went on Larry King. Now, just a note about Sharon and Britney's relationship. They were like besties. Like they were super, super close. It was creepy. It seems like, I don't know if you've seen, is it called Smothered? 
I feel like they would have been on smothered nowadays. Like they were really, really close. Her mother was a person who was fully able to be living independently, yet decided to continue to live with Brittany and Simon after they were married. That seems strange to me. Yeah. Okay, so Sharon and Simon go on Larry King, and then also Simon does a house tour with Radar Magazine. During the interview on Larry King, Sharon seems off. Yeah, she's very weird. Yeah, she's a strange gal. She seemed almost like she was pantomiming what it's like to be a grieving mother. She kind of, like, have you ever seen a silent movie? Like, how they overact? That's how she seemed to me. Yeah. Because a lot of the time she wasn't talking, she was reacting to Simon talking. And so she's just like making these like pained faces. And they were like, it was an odd thing to like see him talking and see her face because it didn't always correspond to what he was saying. It was just like, I don't know how to describe it, but it's strange. I don't know what she was doing. I don't know what (laughs) she was doing, but it's definitely an interesting interview to watch. And so Larry King asked Simon, why didn't you want an autopsy done on your wife? Good question. Fair question. And so it grossed me out. Oh, it's so gross. And I was like, I literally paused and it was like, I need to write every word down because I'm never going to be clean again. And so this is how Simon answers that question. On Larry King. On Larry King. So in reference to Britney's body, he said, she had this pristine body that was curvy in all the right places. Skin like silk. How could I say in front of her mother, cut her up? I'm sorry, sir. What? What? It was so awkward and gross. And like, you're watching Larry King's face. You're watching the mother's face. Who also is like not responding to this like she's listening, right? Like she's like, <gasps> yeah, like gasping when there's no reason to gasp. It's really strange. You're just like, what? what is coming out of your mouth, sir? Because if you weren't a big suspect, like for sure, you've done some weird shit. You've done something. Skin like silk. Ah. That is a murderer's handbook right there. Yeah, we're all unclean. Okay, so to make matters worse, he gives a tour of what he calls the death house to Radar Magazine. And while he's touring, he's like, he's smoking a cigar, which, what? Odd. And like, also just like, don't smoke near me. Anyway, but so he is pointing things out with the cigar and he takes them into the bathroom where Brittany collapsed and he points to like a dog bed. And he's like, yeah, she hit this while she fell. It was a dog's chaise lounge, which, by the way, like if my spouse hit something on the way down, then died, that thing will be gone. It'll be gone. Yeah. So this doesn't make people think he's less shady. So some people come forward and talk about Simon being a con artist. And the first is his first wife. And she said when they first met, he told her he was wealthy. But then they got married in Vegas and then they moved into her house and he became a slob and like this different person. And it became very clear that he was dependent on her for money. And so they broke up and were divorced soon after because she was like, this is 100% not who you said you were. So let's talk a little bit about how Simon and Brittany met. Brittany was reading a script and she was like, oh, brilliant. I must meet the person who wrote this. And so she's introduced to Simon. And perhaps he may have written that script. But the original script that he was famous for was for a movie called Factory Girl. And it turns out that he actually may not have been a writer for that movie. So. What he had done was he sued the studio after the screenplay was written and said, like, I wrote that and you're making a movie based off of something I wrote and it's mine. And rather than this long legal battle, they just gave him a screenwriting credit. And so then everything he got after that was based on that first possible lie. 
Yeah. And his mom was actually on the documentary and she says like he was a great storyteller and that he'd have wild and crazy stories. She seemed a little tongue in cheek. Like she was like trying to tell you some things without telling you some things sometimes. There was points. Yeah. And it, it was odd. I was noticing the way that they mixed it too, where she would say something kind of positive about him. And then the next scene would be he was garbage. <laughs> I mean, but he was garbage. So Simon dies five months after Britney on May 23rd of 2010. Now, it's going to get a little weirder and a little more uncomfortable. Brittany's mother, Sharon, found him unconscious in the master bedroom. And when the paramedics came, they were like, oh, he he's dead. When Sharon called 911, she said, baby, please get up. Oh, no. Which I was like, I'm sorry, excuse me? Mm-hmm. And so I saw that in the documentary and they cut that 911 call there. And I mean, she was the one who called for Brittany. So perhaps that was the call for Brittany. But I don't think they would have made that mistake. So I was like, I'm sorry, baby. Why are you calling your son-in-law baby? Let's talk more. So the coroner report said that he died from acute pneumonia and severe anemia. The same as Brittany. Strange. Again, investigators found an abundance of prescriptions in the bedroom. This time they weren't just Simon Monjack. Some said Trevor Williams. No clue who that is. And he said he didn't know. And then some were out too. Sharon Monjack. And why, yes, that is Brittany's mother's first name with Brittany's husband's last name. Yeah, that fact, I like, I had to pause and rewind for a second. I was like, did I hear this right? Same. I was like, is this right? Because ew. So then they noticed that some of Sharon's items had been moved into the bedroom where Brittany had shared it with her husband. So she later denied it, but she told investigators that she had been sleeping in the bed with Simon so they could comfort one another. What the fuck? Ugh. Ugh. Like, I get grieving. Like, I get that. And, like, grief can make you do strange things. But still, ew. Still, ew. Yeah, definitely. And so Simon's mother, Linda, I love this. She was like, I don't think they were in a relationship because Simon liked young, pretty women. (laughs) Oh, man. I was like, okay. Tell us how you feel, Linda. So Brittany's father, Angelo, was sure something suspicious happened to his 32-year-old daughter. So he funded a private investigation. After reviewing the autopsy records, an independent forensic pathologist, Cyril Wecht, said it was a very particular way for an affluent person to die. That This is like treatable. Everything she died of was very treatable. And that he also suggested that it could have been arsenic poisoning because those same things would have shown. And for the original autopsy, they didn't test her hair to see if there was arsenic present, which is really strange. Yeah. So after a long, lengthy court battle, a hair sample was obtained and it was found that there was dangerously high levels of high metals that would not have been naturally occurring. Right. So something happened. And so Angelo wanted to have Brittany exhumed because he wanted another autopsy done, like where that was more comprehensive, right? And so the other reason was because Angelo knew that Brittany and Simon were planning to move to New York without Sharon and that Sharon would not have liked that. So he was like, oh, God, what did she do? So Sharon had control over whether Brittany was exhumed or not and refused to let her be exhumed for another autopsy. And Angelo fought very hard and he he took every legal avenue he could and he couldn't. And so in 2017, he stopped his efforts. And it's interesting to note that by this time, any samples they would have taken would have degraded so much that it wouldn't have been they wouldn't have been able to really do much. But also Sharon said, oh, the only reason Angelo is fighting is this is because he wants Britney's money. But he wouldn't have gotten Britney's money if there wasn't anything to find. Right. You don't just go like the body's exhumed. Give me the money. That's not how that works. It's not like an old tomb filled with riches. 
Right. She was worried he was going to find something. Yeah. And so sadly, Angelo died in 2019. And then for this particular documentary, Sharon wouldn't be interviewed, which I mean, suspicious. Right. So very strange. And it's very strange that it happened to be the same house where Britney Spears said something was in it trying to kill her. Yeah. So some people go, was it paranormal that something happened to these people and it was the exact same thing, but somehow Sharon escaped with nothing? Yeah. Or was it a curse because that house was cursed and the people that lived in there would be then cursed? Or was it just a coincidence that this happened? Yeah. And they're actually, HBO is going to do another documentary on Brittany Murphy's death. I think it's going to be like a two-parter. Yeah, it's going to be long. So a little bit more about this house, right? A timeline. So in 2010, authorities planned an inspection to see if there was toxic mold and maybe that was to blame. But then the theory was ruled out by the medical examiner office. After their deaths, the home was listed 10 different times in an 11-year span. In 2013, the home underwent a complete makeover and it lasted three years. Developers wanted to tear down the original structure and they upgraded it to a a contemporary design. Strange, right? Mm -hmm. To redo it that much because it was gorgeous already. Yeah. So in 2017, it finally sold and then it was sold again at the end of 2020. So it's not a very long time frame to live in a you know giant mansion. And when it was sold in 2020, it was at a loss. So who lived there and why did they leave so quick, right? Especially during the pandemic, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting that the home had sold so quickly. And I saw that there's this realtor that was the last one to sell it. And he had this like, fancy website dedicated to this house and they even made like a weird commercial type thing of a corgi moving into the house it was very cute and i love corgis so of course it you know piqued my attention they're trying very hard they were trying very hard and it was yeah very interesting so i was like i wonder if one did the dogs do anything weird when they were filming this in the house because you know dogs tell you everything and then two like this guy had to have come to the house several times to like show it and do things so i was like i want to talk to him probably staging it too yeah so i actually reached out to him and we sent an email to him asking like do you have any weird stories do you have anything to say about this home anything strange how did the dogs act everything and uh he responded very quickly the next day and it was just very, very quickly. One little line note, and it just said, very happy home. No fun stories for you. I don't think we were looking for fun stories. Did we say fun stories? No. I had asked him if he had any odd stories to share. And I had said, like, had you felt anything in the home? Did the dogs do anything strange? Did they exhibit any odd behaviors? And yeah, that was his response to me. What do you think? I don't think he... Look, if it's a millions of dollar home, I would decline to give free stories that could uh, make it less likely that I would get a very large commission. Yeah, that's what I was thinking is because people move from this home so frequently, if you think about it, they do, that maybe when it was on the market again, because looking into him, it seemed like he was like the realtor for this area. Mm -hmm. He probably wants it to go through him again, would be my guess. Yeah. Or maybe... Maybe the curse was lifted. Maybe there's no paranormal things anymore. Maybe it left with freaking Sharon. I don't know. Well, also, like, if a cursed object was placed in someone's home in a sneaky way, you might not know it's there, right? Like, if someone put it like, I don't know, like they opened up an electrical thing and then shoved it into the wall, right? Like, 
man was taking a sip when I said that. Uh, <laughs> but like if someone hid a cursed object in their house, the only way would be just to like knock the whole bitch down. Like take the whole thing down and let's start from fresh. Yeah. A very strange place. I don't know which to believe, but I do think something strange indeed happened with Brittany Murphy. And I can't wait for that documentary to come out because like I knew there was a lot of things up in the air, but I didn't know it was this intense until recently. No, I was watching that and I was like, (gasps) like I audibly gasped when they were like Sharon Monjack on the prescription bottle. I went (gasps) just an immediate like the mess. Yeah. So maybe there's a curse there. Perhaps it left. We don't know. So we have one more tonight. Yeah. And I think this might be Amanda's favorite of them. It's certainly, I think, one of the most cursy ones of the curses that we have. For people. For people. For people. Because the rest have kind of been alleged, right? Like, it's like bad stuff happening continuously. Perhaps it's a curse, right? Versus, this is for sure a curse. Yeah, it has to be. So I want to start this one out. I'm not going to say who it is right away, but I'm going to say Zach Baggins is to blame. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> he is to blame. I also have a Zach Baggins as a potato sticker in my Etsy shop. That's all I have. I just needed to say it <laughs> because a celebrity as a potato feels important. And I think I might make more celebrity potatoes. I like him more as a potato. That's fair. He's got his arms are in the potato. Do you know what I mean? Someone described his arms as meaty. So I put those in per request. Got it. Well, and and the only reason I don't like him very much is because I feel like he's very disrespectful when he visits places. If he could be a little more respectful, we could be friends, but I don't like it. Well, also, you know, our very, very first episode, the Velisca axe murders, he went to that house and he was insanely disrespectful and the cutscenes had like axes and it was like, ugh. You know, Amanda and I never, we talked about like the kind of things we wanted to talk about and that kind of stuff. But one of the things that has always come naturally in the show is that we talk about people who have died with respect and we actually have a fucking heart, right? Like we act as though these are real people who died who were, you know, were missed and loved. And so we try not to lose that when we discuss things. And I feel like he perhaps forgets that if you believe in ghosts, you likely believe that those things were human first. And I feel like he forgets that. Right. Very often. And I get that he is a big, super, super tough man. I get it. But perhaps toughness could also be being respectful and gentle and kind. Yeah. So with that being said, that he has to blame, the curse is on Post Malone. And I've heard his music before, right? And I was like, oh, I kind of like this. Like, it's it's different. It doesn't really fall into like a, a certain genre, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's different. And I want to note that watching some of these interviews about this curse, that he is the most polite person I feel like I've ever seen interviewed. Ever. And it surprised me. Yes. He seems like just like the sweetest. Also, his Twitter name is like Posty. Yeah. I want to give him a hug. Yeah. But I thought it was like just a good example of not judging a book by the cover because he has like the face tattoos and all of that. And he seems like he's just like this big softy. And he's a big believer in the paranormal. And he's also said to, I think it was Seth Meyers, that he's seen a UFO. Post Malone, tell us more. So definitely not what I expected. 
But how the curse happened. So Post Malone visited that haunted museum that Zach has in Las Vegas in June of 2018. And while there, Zach showed him something called a Dybbuk box. And this particular box inspired the movie The Possession. And Dybbuk is Yiddish for malicious spirit or malicious possessing spirit. It is believed to be the most haunted object in the world. So, of course, he's like, come on, Post Malone, let's go check it out. This guy, this fucking guy. (laughs) So the box was given to the museum after being purchased on eBay as a wine cabinet. So because this is such a long story, we're actually going to be doing a detailed history of the Dybbuk box, and it's going to have its own episode coming up in the future. So on a normal day, this box that's in the museum is in a protective casing. And you also have to be over 18 and sign a waiver from what I've seen to go in that room. Okay, fair. Zach allowed him to see it without the casing. And there is a video. It's not very long. It looks like a security video from the museum. And it's very weird. You can't hear them. But it looks like Post Malone standing by the door. And then Zach touches the box. And he looks, uh, you can't see Zach's face, but it looks like something happened. And Post Malone goes to like open the door and he tries to get Zach to leave. That's my interpretation of it. Yeah, that's what it looks like. And he also looks like alarmed. He looks frightened. Yeah. Like, I can't understand what he's saying. But what I'm imagining he's saying is like, haha, funny. Okay, let's go now. Yeah. So then he goes back in while Zach is backing away from it. They chat for a moment. Then he grabs Zach's shoulder and they both leave the room. Looks like in a hurry. I believe Zach had his hand on the box. And then that was when like Post Malone goes and reaches to touch Zach. And people believe that it was this touch that allowed whatever curse to like flow through Zach into Post and possibly because I'll tell you what happened in a minute, but possibly the curse might have been diluted because it went through someone. But wouldn't Zach have been cursed as well? I feel like he's already cursed. Yeah, I mean, he has to be super cursed. Maybe they're just like, no more room for curses. Let's go to this nice guy. Do you think that if Zach Baggins was cursed, he would tell people about it? Because on one hand, it's like, I'm cursed and like, big tough guy. And on the other side, it's like proof that he's doing dumb shit, like dumb, reckless, cosmically (laughs) bad stuff and act like he's kind of like a proverbial kid in a candy shop, but that's not candy. It's cursed shit. He's just sticking his hand in all the jars (laughs) with an axe. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, look at me touching cursed things. I'm so cool. We have really strong feelings. Like, the show's funny. It's an interesting watch, but like, this isn't what we're talking about. It's cringy at the same time. Yeah. It's cringy and it's disrespectful. So, what is this curse, right? So, what happened? So, Post saw a dark figure follow him from the museum. And let's fast forward a little bit. So, in August of 2018, after the VMAs were done, he boarded a private plane to go to London. So right after takeoff, the tires blew immediately. Oof. Yeah. So what they had to do, because I, I don't know anything about planes, but they had to hover around for a while. They had to like fly around almost in circles for a bit because they needed to burn fuel in order to make the plane lighter. Because a lighter plane is going to make for an easier landing, especially when you don't have the proper equipment. 16 people were on board and there was a bunch of emergency crews on standby waiting for them to land. Luckily, the plane was able to land safely and everyone on board was just fine. When Post Malone landed, he tweeted, I landed, guys. Thank you for your prayers. 
Can't believe how many people wished me death on this website. Fuck you, but not today. Twitter is really vicious. It is. It's not nice. So days later, so on September 1st, in the middle of the night, armed robbers broke into his home that he used to live in. He had recently, I guess, moved, sold it, and it was in the San Fernando Valley. He wasn't there because he did no longer live there. Cool, cool, cool. And three men entered the old residence. One of the men allegedly pistol whipped the current resident and later asked, where's Post Malone? Jesus. The robbers got away with $20,000 and other things like jewelry and cell phones. The new residents had no connection with Post. If someone was going to take $20,000 worth of belongings from your home, what size vehicle would they need? Like for me, it wouldn't be like one arm full. Like <laughs> I think they'd probably have to take most of the things in the house in order for it to like... <laughs> Sorry, I just thought about that. I was like, wow, you must have like, I mean, obviously they're living in Post Malone's old house. So like it has to be a nice house. But I'm just thinking of like what that must be like. Or like people who buy like $10,000 purses. I'm like, what if a lipstick melts in it? I'm going to break that strap in three months. (laughs) I'm going to get drunk and I'm going to sit on the bathroom floor because I'm too busy trying to like, I'm always in a goddamn romper. So I'd be like, look, I'm trying to get naked in this stall. I can't worry about where my $10,000 Birkin bag is. Anyway, that's not the point of this. I'm sorry. I just I just needed to know if you had thought about that because I had thought about that. I hadn't. Just like someone being like, I'm just going to pocket a few things and walk off with $20,000. I imagine like there's like a $20,000 stupid vase on a table when you enter, you know? Do you think that robbers are stealing vases typically? No, but I'm just saying. Oh, I wish they were though. Like floral arrangements, like really nice floral arrangements. Do you think, okay, again, off topic? Yes, it is. But so here's my question. Do you think that really rich people have like really nice fake flowers in their house? Or do you think that they have fresh flowers that some minion replaces? Ooh, that's a good question. Because like, don't they have, rich people can have allergies, right? Like, that's a thing for rich people. (laughs) (laughs) They get sinus transplants. Could I? (laughs) Please? (laughs) Look, we're at 10,000. What can't we do now? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> funny to not okay. take that part out, please. no uh, i'm not okay so just to put it into perspective these robbers more than likely were responsible for additional break-ins in the area because there were a lot of reported celebrity break-ins i wonder if they were just trying to find stuff that they could like pawn and be like this was once owned by post malone maybe this is his half-eaten box of ritz crackers they're just like us you're welcome these are great robbers all right it's just stream of consciousness that's what comes out my goodness so another unfortunate event that happened in post malone's life is on september 7th so shortly after around 2 42 a.m his rolls royce was involved in a crash with a kia <laughs> When were their hamsters involved? It's low hanging fruit. It's low hanging fruit. I'm okay about it. So his assistant was driving his car and he was in the passenger seat. Both were fine. After the crash at 3.38 a.m. on September 7th, he posted a tweet. God must hate me. LOL. So chill about it. I love that attitude. Yeah. It seems, though, that his luck probably got better after this because in an interview with Seth Meyers a couple years later, he talked about the curse, the whole incident. And he also talked about his current house and how he has work being done. And he kind of joked around for a while. But something that stood out to me is Seth Meyers asked him about a potential bunker that he has being built. 
You don't ask people about their bunkers. He talks about it a little bit. And they're like joking around about how he's going to make a place for, I want to say it was like 30 of his friends to be able to hang out and stay the night. But it sounded like he's kind of hinting that something's going to go down and he needs this bunker for him and like everyone he knows. Does he think the world's ending? I want to know what Post Malone knows. I want to know what Post Malone knows. Now, just question. What if his new house, just follow me, was the Britney's house redone and there's a bunker underneath? It is in another state. Yeah, it's not in California. That's disappointing. Yeah, but his Twitter seems like he's doing pretty good. He has done, uh, what, some like virtual concert. Yeah. Yeah, he's all over the place. He did the soundtrack for uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, yeah. So I think he's okay now. Good. I think so. We wish him... (laughs) good things in the future okay so like amanda mentioned at the top of the episode we have an abundance of curse content for you now uh in an attempt to make our show not just curses we're gonna spread that over the next few months so if you have curses that you are dying to hear about you know the ways to get in contact with us it's also on our outro but with that have a good weekend thanks for creeping with us thank you for listening to cool creep thanks for listening For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 